Welcome to the Secretary Survey, the Irish Pre-Hospital Podcast. Hello, and you are very welcome to the Secondary Survey. I'm Kevin Gill, and this month, myself and Joe Mooney are discussing pregnancy-related emergencies, or as they're called, maternity calls. How are you, Joe? I'm great, Kevin. Thanks, Amina. Yeah, when we think of maternity calls, particularly in the public consciousness, it tends to be of the uncomplicated pre-hospital delivery, where the delivery is assisted by our pre-hospital care practitioners or even our call taker at the end of a phone. And this all happens very happily and in a controlled environment. And then it's a happy tale for the family for years to come and even the potential for a photograph with a very smiley ambulance crew in a national newspaper. Mm. However, the pregnancy patient can also have a wide spectrum of pre-existing medical conditions, some of which can be complicated by pregnancy. These conditions still have to be managed during the gestation and can present real challenges for both pre-hospital care and in-hospital clinicians. That's before we even discuss or think about issues such as premature delivery, postpartum hemorrhage, presental emergencies such as previous abruption, preeclampsia or eclamptic seizures. Did I get them all? Uh, nearly, but you also forgot to mention the breach presentations and the issues surrounding the cord. Oh yeah. Traditionally, the seasoned practitioners would say the only drug is diesel in such cases. But while this is partly true, the pathophysiology and the physiological processes don't pause for transport. And while it's important to keep forward momentum in some life-threatening conditions, as we will discuss shortly, some conditions only have a window of five to seven minutes to make a meaningful intervention that could save a baby from a catastrophic outcome. So no pressure then? No pressure. These are big pressure calls. Fortunately, the Pre-Hospital Emergency Care Council have delivered (laughs) (laughs) a new suite of clinical practice guidelines for OBS and gynae emergencies. These CPGs are aligned with the HSC National Obstetric and Gynecology CPGs. Well done. Thank you. So we should be in most cases providing a similar or the same standard of care to these patients in time critical emergencies. We will be recording an episode shortly with an obstetrician to go into more detail of the new CPGs, particularly the mechanics of them. But tonight we will have just a little chat about some of the overarching conditions. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, yeah. it's going to be a great episode with the obstetrician. You didn't write this, did you? (laughs) (laughs) So So let's start, get into the main swing of things, Uh, vomiting in pregnancy. So when we think of vomiting in pregnancy, we traditionally think about morning sickness and the condition called hyperemesis gravidium. It is important to remember that both these are diagnoses of exclusion. So considering other causes of vomiting is important, such as gastrointestinal disorders, infection, metabolic conditions such as Addison's disease or diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA, and medication use. In that vein, it's important to remember pain, headaches and fever are not normally associated with these conditions. So what are these conditions? Morning sickness. So it's a condition that is reported by 70 to 80% of pregnant patients and usually occurs between the 4th and 16th week of pregnancy. Although a really unlucky 10% of women affected have it beyond 20 weeks. Despite its name, it can happen at any time of the day. Its causes are unknown, but it's thought to be linked to a hormone, human, coronic. Go on, you can do it. Gonanotropic HCG. (laughs) (laughs) This is the hormone that can indicate pregnancy and it's produced by cells surrounding the fetus and eventually by the placenta. So I'll just take over as the Harry Potter now, Joe. Thank you. Right, so hyperemesis gravidarium. There you see. Good man, well done, well done. I'd be in Slytherin, is it? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, that's the height of my Harry Potter knowledge. 
Anyway, this is characterized by severe nausea and vomiting. Not Harry Potter, but hyperemesis gravidarium. Well, could be. Could be, yeah. Could be a mix of both. So, severe nausea and vomiting, which can be so severe that some women may even seek a termination. Like morning sickness, it's associated with the first trimester, but it can be present for most, if not all, the pregnancy. It is characterized by weight loss of 5% of the pre-pregnancy weight, electrolyte imbalances, metabolic conditions such as metabolic ketoacidosis. As you can imagine, patients with this can be very unwell, so it's important to rule out other differentials. In terms of trying to grade how severe the vomiting is, hospitals use the PUKE scale. Now that is spelt P-U-Q-E and stands for the Pregnancy Unique Quantification of Emesis and Nausea. It's a simple survey consisting of three questions with five possible answers, with the points designated for severity, five being the worst and one being the least. This allows the patient to be stratified in severity of symptoms and can aid in deciding of to which degree of hospitalization may be required. Very similar to a pain score. Pretty much. And probably a question we should also be asking in our pain scores with another CBG or another episode is possibly uh, what they also ask, which is the quality of life score. So treatment options in such cases involve the administration of cyclozine and intravenous fluids. It's important to remember that as per our guidelines, Ndansetron is contraindicated on the FEC CPG, but it has been added to the updated standards for medication during pregnancy. You may have come across some pregnant women in the community taking Ndansetron, so why was it contraindicated? Well, as mentioned earlier, both morning sickness and hyperemesis are associated with the first trimester. This is when the fetus is developing, you know, body systems and anatomical structures. Ndansetron in animal studies had been linked to developmental abnormalities and there was a belief that this link could lead to the development of cleft palate so i suppose after everything they learned in the 50 with tamilda you know they they really had to be careful so this is why it was contraindicated previously by feck yeah it is now in the upgraded or updated medications used in pregnancy that you can use it in the second and third trimester and only to be used in the fourth trimester if any other antiemetic is not suitable but I think this will be a fair call to make to Medicare and Cork just to get other further advice before you give them Donzatron in the first trimester because we really shouldn't be giving it. But it's good to use in the second term. Absolutely. And I mean, in fairness, that's what it's there for. And it's good that we have that guidance. So now another easy one. Now, I don't know how much training you've done on this, job, but... Trust me, I've probably done more more in the research <laughs> than I did on my EMT course, my paramedic course back in the day. So preeclampsia. So this is another change in the CPGs as it's the mainstreaming of a condition. And this condition happens to be preeclampsia. So what is preeclampsia? Well, the definition as per the HSE National Clinical Guidelines is a multi-system disorder unique to human pregnancy characterized by hypertension and involvement of one or more organ systems and or the fetus. So nice and easy to remember. The physiology of preeclampsia is not fully understood. I love those questions when we were doing our training, you know. It's it's not fully understood, you know. But it is thought to be down to an abnormal placenta development that results in reduced blood flow to the placenta. This reduced hypoperfusion of the placenta leads to a pooling of blood in the placenta. There is also an increased sensitivity to agents in the mother's vasculature, which leads to vasoconstriction and also increased vascular permeability. So that basically means that it gets leaky. This leads to extracellular fluid leaking into the interstitial space. As well as this, there's hypercoagulability causing further reduction in blood flow to the small vessels. So pretty much what it's actually doing is it's causing, you know, a hyperperfusion systemically. This leads to hypertension, ischemia in the liver and kidneys and peripheral edema, which can lead to eventual cerebral edema and then the resultant 
eclamptic feeders. Hence the reason it's called preeclampsia. I thought that was a trick question there. <laughs> oh, don't I worry. I wasn't listening, so I wasn't listening. I was. <laughs> oh, God, where's Dr. Google when you need him? <laughs> so it normally occurs after 20 weeks of gestation, but in rare cases can happen up to eight weeks postpartum, which I don't think a lot of people realize, and it possibly gets missed. Its symptoms are hypertension, visual disturbance, abdominal pain, peripheral edema, and headache. If it's not treated, it progresses to the eclamptic seizures that I mentioned, which are tonic-clonic seizures. While the CPG refers to it as a preeclampsia. Our clinical indications for intervention represent the severe presentation of preeclampsia in the HSC national guideline. So I think that's really important to remember is that we're not being asked to intervene with vague symptoms or at an early stage. Absolutely. The, C- the CPGs are guiding us to that patients need to be treated at that particular time. Yes. Our treatment option is for four milligrams of magnesium sulfate in a hundred mil bag of saline infused over 30 minutes. The reason it's magnesium is magnesium sulfate is a smooth muscle relaxant which relaxes the vasculature. And of course, we'd be treating our seizures with medaz as well on top of that. The only real cure for this, believe it or not, is actually delivery of the baby and the placenta. And, and they, I think I'll, I'll just come back to your further point there, Kevin, was that if you have a, a postpartum mother who is four or five or six weeks and then having a seizure, being aware that she is a mother six weeks and could be having an eclamptic seizure now, I think is, is fairly not known. It's fairly well not known. So it should be probably higher on our index of suspicion going out to a X year old female six weeks post delivery and she's having a seizure. So I think it's something that we should look at. It should be in our it should be in our index of suspicion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's again boiling down to my point in our first episode about anchoring bias and confirmation bias. So sometimes it isn't what it says on the tin. So now, Joe, so shoulder dystocia, there's a nice one for you. Thanks. Thanks. This is a true obstetric emergency and it affects 1% of all pregnancies. The guidance from both the National Clinical Guidance and the Ambulance Victoria, which is, in fairness, a fantastic set of CPGs if anyone's ever looking for some guidance on managing this presentation, is to try and resolve the presentation within five minutes as hypoxic brain injuries and end organ damage in the infant is highly likely beyond five minutes. So this is real where diesel doesn't work and we have to get in and get this baby out and get the shoulder dislodged. The pre-hospital guideline and the national HSE guideline mirror each other broadly, with a few exceptions. I think that this would be a case where I would probably call for a second ALS resource or another crew or get someone else because you need more hands with this. Or even if a critical care doctor is available, I think that would be a big benefit. Once recognised as a shoulder dystocia, this is where you need to intervene, but also maintain four momentum of care so we would pre-alert the hospital at this stage of what we are presented with and we'll give the hospital time to prepare with the inbound pre-alert serving to tell them if our interventions were successful or not well that's actually a very good idea like just to do a pre-pre-alert get them ready for yeah what you're uh, dealing you know, with yes i have a 38 year old female here query shoulders associate on her second child we're 15 minutes from hospital for our giving care en route we'll be there with you as soon as possible hmm. yes absolutely so um that leaves me with cord prolapse or umbilical cord complications so i think the common theme through all these cpgs is that you know the only drug is diesel is superficially true and that we should start adopting the concept of forward momentum which is is basically continuing treatment or trying to maintain treatments on an ongoing basis. And that is very important for prolapsed cord. So what is a prolapsed cord? Well, the definition of a prolapsed cord, again, 
as by the National Clinical Guidelines, is that it's an acute obstetric emergency where the cord has descended through the cervix in the presence of ruptured membranes. So basically, the cord has actually come out before the baby has actually come out. There are two types, all right? So this occult, this is where it descends alongside the presenting part and is invisible externally or overt which is past the presenting part and easily palpable or visibly externally so i mean i think we're always taught traditionally that it's the overt that if, yeah, yeah but you know we should probably be consequent that it can actually happen where we don't actually see anything it has a high mortality and morbidity for the fetus due to the fact that the baby will asphyxiate due to compression of the cord and or cause a vasospasm within the cord and that can be caused by pressure such as the baby pushing against it but it can also be temperature changes and one of the things we're always taught with maternity calls and delivery keep them warm the ambulance should be so hot that everyone is uncomfortable except the baby exactly so very important to have the heater on if you suspect this going on so management well the ultimate goal of the treatment is to relieve or prevent compression of the cord while rapidly transferring the patient to a surgical intervention so we can do this three ways The first is head down lateral position where the patient is placed in the left lateral position with a pillow under her left hip. Alternatively, to place the stretcher in Trindelenburg where the bed is tilted so her head is lower than her pelvis. So basically we're trying to get gravity to help us. The second is manual elevation of the fetal head where the clinician manually elevates the fetal head by pushing it upwards in order to relieve pressure on the prolapse cord. Care must be maintained not to inadvertently put more pressure on the cord as this and temperature changes can be lead to the vasoconstriction of the cord. So head down, left lateral. Exactly. And FEC have covered that statement or covered that with a blanket statement stating minimal movement of the, or touching of the cord and cover with sterile pad. Hopefully it will go back in itself. Hopefully. The baby. The The third is to insert an indwelling catheter into the bladder and infuse 500 mils of saline, which is then clamped. This will potentially keep the baby's head elevated out of the birth canal until hospital intervention. This in the FECT CPGs specifies longer than 15 minute transport. So if you're a good way out, that's probably a consideration that we should probably have. But then we did have what drug, Joe? Nephelipine. Have you ever used Nephelipine? No. Me neither. Have I ever heard of anybody using Nephelipine for this? Not since the 80s. No. (laughs) So why was it removed? So it was initially in CPGs to act as a tocolytic. So a tocolytic is basically a medication that can slow or stop the labor. A tocolytic medication, however, isn't used in the national guidelines from the HSC for this clinical indication. I did ask when I was on my maternity placements about nifedipine, and I was told that due to its relatively long onset of action, so about 20 minutes, by which time the fetus probably would have died. You got the exact same answer on my mind question as well. So. Also back to the urinary catheterization, it's something that we don't do. So. Community paramedic. It's a community paramedic round, yeah, or a critical care doc. I think it's something that we should have rolling towards us if, if available to maybe pass the catheter and fill the bladder. That is a life-saving intervention. Absolutely, but you know, one of the things that's kind of been becoming more apparent now because like we've really moved and we're continuing to move as a profession into our own kind of spectrum of expertise and maybe you know ap students would possibly get their exposure to putting in the indwelling catheter by doing placements and rotations with frailty teams absolutely community paramedics and at least then they're comfortable right so we've covered a good portion of the cpgs now so we are now on post-pregnancy care including miscarriage and abortion 
So I think, Joe, you're going to lead us on with this one, are you? I am. Absolutely, Kevin. So we've gone through a lot of the cases and conditions that the baby and the mother can suffer from while pregnant. But after the mother has given birth, there is conditions that can happen and can make the mother very sick. And one of these is a postpartum hemorrhage or a PPH. And postpartum hemorrhage, we do see in the pre-hospital community. So you go in and, you know, the baby's out and the umbilical cord is cut and then the mother starts to hemorrhage. And we do have an old and a new clinical practice guideline for this, which is good to see because we have increased our dose of five international units of oxytocin to our now 10 international units of oxytocin, which is in line with our in-hospital colleagues. We also have the uterine massage, which is a very nice way of saying applying quite a heavy amount of pressure to the uterus to force the contractions down. And it's a painful procedure to be done. I think massage is a very misleading term. And I think we need to explain the procedure in depth to the mother and get the oxytocin in. I think the massive big step as well now, and it's great to see that all pregnant women after giving birth will be given the oxytocin pre-hospital. And I think there's a, a caveat there that if she's having twins or any more babies and that, she doesn't get the oxytocin after the first baby is born. So yeah, I think it's a good CPG. I think it's something that we've come across. I've come across a number of times now. And the oxytocin, it's a fantastic, I was going to say a medication, but really it's a natural occurring hormone that has just been put in the boil and made by a pharmaceutical company. So yeah, and it's not milligrams and it's not mils, it's international units. So it's nearly like a made up dose from a pharmaceutical point of view. But it's good that we now have the in-line hospital treatment as well, that we're given the same dose again. Uh, I think so. And I think that, I mean, you're, you're after kind of hitting the nail on the head a few times. So we have increased the dose of oxytocin, which is a natural occurring hormone. And I think what we need to understand is what we're dealing with, with this postpartum hemorrhage or particularly after the first moments of birth. Basically, it's that the uterus hasn't contracted. So the muscle is very relaxed. And because it's relaxed, the arteries aren't in spasm to ease the bleeding. So our treatments are really to kind of stimulate kind of muscle contraction. As you mentioned, oxytocin is a hormone. And you also mentioned breastfeeding. So the reason why we encourage breastfeeding is because it will naturally stimulate the production of oxytocin which is a kind of a, a nice little nugget for you to remember because it's, a, well, it's a free access to oxytocin if you think about it, and it's an easy thing to do. The other thing that they have on it is TXA. So, Joe, you're going to be telling us a little bit more about TXA. Pre-hospital drug, Kevin, uh, pre-hospital drug. drug. <laughs> yeah, the... yeah. We, really we should really get that uh, on should be on a cup or, of or yeah, t-shirts absolutely. or something. Make TXA great again. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the woman's <laughs> trial was a massive <laughs> trial. It was over 20,000 people, 20,060 women in Africa and uh, Asia. And basically what they done was it was a double blind randomized placebo controlled trial. And it basically decreased the chances of dying by one third after TXA was given for a postpartum hemorrhage which is just a massive, massive survival rate. They recorded 483 deaths in the research, but of the ones, all of the patients who died were caused by bleeding afterwards. So it is clearly shown that it reduces bleeding deaths by almost one third. And also the mortality rates were similar to that of more developed countries, they said in their conclusions, but also that tackling late presentations and the availability for blood products will actually help. And I think that's a fair conclusion to come to. So the woman's trial, if anyone wants to have a look, it is available all over the internet and it is a fantastic trial, but to have 
20,060 women enrolled in it. It was a substantial piece of work and it showed by one third it reduced the number of deaths. So it's safe to give. It works. It's effective. And it's great that we have it now in Ireland for postpartal hemorrhage. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100% on that one. It's definitely going to be a valuable asset for PV bleeding, particularly postpartum. And I suppose for the people who aren't AP or, you know, not even, not 100% sure what TXA is. So transamic acids is basically a medication that we give and it stops the breakdown of clots. So it's very valuable to have where you have a non-compressible site of bleeding. So an interesting thing to also note is that the PV bleeding is on an adjacent arm to sepsis. With the sepsis in this particular CPG, it says that the additional sepsis symptoms, lower back pain, PV bleed and PV discharge. So one of the main reasons why it's mentioned in this CPG is that this CPG is dealing with post-pregnancy care, both antepartum, postpartum and and then miscarriage and abortion. So it's quite possible that people can have an incomplete either evacuation of the placenta postpartum or that they might have retained products of conception in a miscarriage or an abortion. So if you have the normal sepsis symptoms with an additional of lower back pain, PV bleed or PV discharge in a lady who may have had miscarriage, abortion or uh, postpartum, it's a good thing to consider that we might have to take this person into an obstetric unit and aggressively treat them with the sepsis CPG. Would you agree, Joe? Yeah, absolutely, Kevin, 100%. A few years ago, there was some high-profile case of a female patient who died in a hospital due to a lack of recognition of a sepsis point of view. So I think we're very aware of it pre-hospital now and even outside of the obstetrics emergencies, the availability of our keftorexone for now on coming online for even open fractures with, with dirt in it. It shows the importance that we take of pre-hospital of dealing with sepsis. And we of the sepsis six, we can give 50%. You know, we can give the fluids, we can give the antibiotics. And what's the other one? <laughs> don't know, Kev, what's the other one? You're going to have to edit all this, pal. It's, ox- <laughs> it's oxygen. It's oxygen. <laughs> and yeah, I agree with that, yeah. Right. So another nice ad- addition to the post-pregnancy care is altered mood. Now, they're very, very careful to say altered mood and not depression or whatever. And it tells you to basically consider the mental health CPG and assess the home environment and supports. It's a, quite a common thing that women, particularly postpartum, will have dips and highs of their mood. But if it's left untreated or unrecognized, it can have some fairly upsetting and complex issues for the mother and the child ongoing. So if you notice someone who seems to be struggling, you know, you should always, this isn't just from a pre-hospital point of view, but thing in general, if you notice someone struggling, talk to them and try and encourage them to get help. As we know from the past couple of years, there's been some fairly tragic cases where this kind of thing hasn't been given its due credit and it's led to some tragic events. So it's an important aspect to add into the CPG even if we can't do very much pre-hospital except offer a, a listening ear we can get that patient potentially referred on get proper care and proper help there Joe yeah absolutely Kevin I agree yeah absolutely yeah it impacts the, the mother as you were saying and the child and then also the wider family and especially if it goes to an extent where there's been harm or or even worse being carried out then you know it affects whole communities so it's something we have to be aware of and I think our in-hospital colleagues are very aware of it and our public health nurses and staff who 
who come in to the homes a few weeks and a few months after the baby's born are highly aware of it and the conversations are open and supportive around that so yeah we're a very small part of the health service but I think we can give support in any way shape or form if needed to, to some of the people who might be finding it very difficult yeah absolutely and point as well I suppose to take into consideration with this is the fact that this CPG again deals with miscarriage and abortion so you know again very sensitive topics and you really have to be conscious of the effects that both of them essentially are going to have a traumatic effect on the mother and the family that we don't judge we listen and we offer support and a listening ear yeah absolutely I can't you can't disagree with that absolutely it's a very sensitive subject and sometimes our pre-hospital care with all the critical care stuff and all the all the high-tech drugs and medications and, and all the things we do sometimes a hand-holding and just talking to the patient and just being there for someone in their time of need is probably all that's needed sometimes yeah I can't disagree with the board is that right so we're coming up to the end of this podcast anyway thank god so suddenly joe is there anything that you'd like to to add into the into the mix uh, not too much now i we ho- i hope you have enjoyed the episode we are planning to have as kevin said earlier on the episode with the obstetrics consultant uh, coming months so stay tuned for that it's going to be a cracking episode and that will be more the nitty-gritty of the physical treatment that we can give and how we can aid and support the mother and baby so that's going to be something to keep an ear out for give us a like give us a share any comments any anything you think we can be talking talking about drop us a message or a post on twitter or on facebook and take care and thank you very much and stay safe all information recorded is solely the opinion of the presenters and their guests they do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider content is not to be taken as medical advice and should not affect established guidelines and protocols thank you for listening take care